This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Join us next June for the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine Brewers Retreat to the Ultimate Brewing Experience in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Don't miss the chance to brew with some of the world's best brewers like Jason Perkins of Allagash, Phil Wymore of Perennial, Will Myers of Cambridge Brewing, Neil Fisher of Weldworks, Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest, Sam Richardson of Other Half, and more. Enjoy fabulous food, fantastic beer, and a one-of-a-kind brewing experience at an oceanfront luxury resort. Tickets are selling fast. Visit BrewersRetreat.com or give us a call at 888-875-8708, extension zero to secure your spot now. Hey everybody, it's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I have escaped the cold and snow of the East Coast for the palm trees and sunshine of Southern California, and I'm here in the greater Los Angeles area, and sitting across from me at Three Weavers Brewing Company is the brewmaster, Alexandra Noel. I got it right. Hello. Yes. Hi. Okay. Mm-hmm. I always, you know, I feel like I'm going to butcher it. I ask you right before we go on. You could say it say 15 it. different ways and I would probably still say that that was fine. No, but, but <laughs> own your name. Um, you've been brewing for a while and in, in your bio, you highlight that you started off interning at Sierra Nevada. It's and true. then from there, you jumped to a bunch of different California breweries working in various jobs uh, before you made it to here uh, back in 2014. Right, when you guys opened thereabouts? Uh, I officially signed out with Three Weavers in 2013, okay. so I was part of the development of the brewery itself from, you know, not necessarily its business planning, but from just the, the you know, location, the build-out, and stuff like that. So I've been involved with Three Weavers, I wouldn't say since day one, because right. day one was when Lynn founded it, but day two and a half. Okay. Yeah. But from all of the various breweries that you were at, Sierra Nevada and Moreland's, and you were at Drake's as mm-hmm. well, and you Correct. were, you know, um, you had all of these different jobs, and I'm wondering if there was one particular lesson, one particular day that you had in leading up to to, to coming here and, and you know being a founder and you know getting getting all of this going that sort of guided you through your own process. You know, having worked for so many other people uh, in different sizes with breweries that have different philosophies, different takes on things. Um, was there one thing that stood out where you said when you walked in here day one, this is what I learned, this is what I have to do? Uh, I would, I mean, I think that it's more of how I approach my daily life as a brewer. And it was Mike Manti, who was the one who taught me how to brew at Drake's Brewing Company. And he's like, Alex, you're going to get to the point where you know just enough to be dangerous. And then you'll get past that point and everything will be fine. And I still think about that all the time because it forces me to second, like I double and triple check almost every decision that I make because I don't want to screw up. And you're constantly keeping yourself in a position where you're like, it's not that feeling of impending doom. I think that that's <laughs> a bit extreme and stressful, but knowing that you're never going to be perfect and something is always waiting to humble you. So just be ready for it. But I mean, and the brewing industry is filled with that, right? Just when you think that you've mastered something, something comes out of the blue and bites you on the ass. I think the the way to avoid that is to really believe that you're never going to master it. And that's something that I, I've, Mitch Steele has always been really solid about, like kind of Former like driving that, around, yeah. yeah, driving that point home. And I take that to heart. You're never going to master this. There's always something to learn. Always. And if, if you get to the point where you feel like you've mastered everything, you're done. 
just like leave your keys on the desk and leave. Like that's, you're, you're done. What have you learned most recently? How to accept change. Okay. <laughs> a little bit better. Becoming flexible in times of change. Um, we've Are been, you alluding to the sale? Uh, it's to some degree. It's, it's the canarchy, um, kind of the integration of our operations, which is interesting. But just know, being a part of a rapidly growing brewery, I mean, we've maintained triple digit growth since we've opened. And with that comes a constant state of change. And it's not resisting it as much. I used to get angry and like, no, oh, you cannot do that. This is the way we do it. Instead, now you're like, I guess maybe it's becoming more open to other people's opinions within the organization as you grow. It's no longer your show. It's mm-hmm. be, it becomes um, much more than just yourself, myself, or Lynn. Lynn Weaver, the founder of Three Weavers. But it's it becomes about everyone else. And knowing that as much as Three Weavers impacts my life, it impacts their life as well. But, you know, so many of the beers that have come out of here have been your brainchild, have been, you know, like, you know, your... I'd say 99.9% of them. Are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you had the autonomy to do the beers that you wanted to do and to know your local market and to, um, you know, you know, speak to, to, to the customers that way. And now, you know, being part of a larger group, like it, it, there has to be some sort of fun collaboration, but then there also has to be a little bit of like, Hey man, back off. Like this no. is, this is my IPA. N- n- no, there's, no? N- there's like, I had autonomy prior to Canarchy. I have autonomy within Canarchy. The, there's no movement to brew one thing over another. There's no cost-cutting measures on our ingredients. Um, nothing like that has changed, and there's no pressure to do so. There are some cool collaborations. Like right now, I'm working on multiple collaborations with Cigar City. I have one coming up with Oscar Blues. Like there's a lot of opportunity within it because I now have these people that have always been that have been like my friends, and I've looked up to them within the industry. But they're now my literal colleagues, mm-hmm. which is pretty great. But no, there hasn't really been any sort of uh, question about what I continue to want to brew, which is amazing. I mean, I don't think that we would have moved through with that deal had that been part of the equation. What do you like to brew? It depends, right? Um, I am very ingredient focused, so usually it's an ingredient that will pique my interest enough to be um, motivated or inspired to brew with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do take a particular focus on experimental varieties of hops. I like to draw the different profiles out of a hop that some would attribute to fruit or different adjunct additions to a beer. But I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of brute stuff right now, not necessarily because it's on trend, but because I'm pretty fascinated by how the enzymes work and kind of figuring out the best process for it, how it works in higher gravity, how it works in lower gravity, um, that and... It's citrus season right now in California, so mm-hmm. we do a lot of emphasis on like on citrus beers. Um, so it's also finding really interesting fruits and then better ways to add them to the beer. So it's uh, I don't know. It's I can't say that there's one specific thing that I really love brewing right now, but I do really love brewing drinkable beers, drinkable, approachable, balanced, and I think that that's a trend that will never die, and certainly not within who I am as a brewer. All right, so I I want to unpack uh, all three of those things. So the first thing on Brute, um, uh, it's a, about a year old as far as the style goes with yeah. Brute IPA, and you know came up at uh, at Social Kitchen uh, coming out with Thank his. Thank you, and, Kim. Yeah. Um, you know, and and since then, it seems like everybody's sort of trying their hand at them. Yeah. And I, I was really annoyed. There's a there's a, a beer paper down in 
San Diego, and I was just down there, and one of their columnists was doing his, his year-end questions. Dr. Q. Yeah, did uh-huh. you see this? I and did, and he said Brute was dead. Yeah, he said, um, uh, the question was, you know, what about Brute IPA? And he said, a lot of people tried, everybody failed, let's move on. And and, and I got so annoyed at that. Yeah, because it, I almost stirred the pot on the internet, but I'm like, Alex, it's Facebook, don't yeah. do it. Well, we're doing it now by, by, uh, by Dr. putting Q, it out Dr. Q, you're podcast. gonna hear this, I'm um, gonna make sure. No, nobody listens to this, that's fine. But um, will. it's... Uh, <laughs> But but so I'm really curious about that though because when Kim first started doing it he was he was adding the enzyme to the fermenter but mm. then stopped doing it because he likes to repitch his yeast and it was screwing up his yeast so like he, he couldn't do it right so the original beers were very clear um, you know really sort of zero um, as it were and then when he started adding it to the uh, to the mash it, less so. Yeah, as, as it were, and things sort of changed. So, and now we're seeing people add them to you know, fruited beers, and people are just kind of screwing around with them mm-hmm. now. So, with the enzyme itself, like, wh- what are you having fun experimenting with? We add it during fermentation. Okay, um, we have a lot of tanks to choose from when it comes to pitching yeast. Mm-hmm. So, if we add enzymes to one tank, the yeast is done. Obviously, we're not going to repitch sure. it, which is totally fine. But we have. We have the opportunity afforded to us, like the many fermenters that we have in our cellars. So we have a lot of tanks to choose from in terms of, of yeast go, uh, as far as pitching goes. But I think that you can't really get the same result from putting it into the mash, right? Because you have to denature it. Exactly. Right. And yeah. and if you give it, if you put it into the fermenter, you allow it to kind of run its full course. Where the first beer we brewed, it was the first time we made the brewed IPA. It was a collaboration with Buxton Brewery out of Buxton, England. Okay. And we went a little high in our starting gravity. This thing finished at negative one because <laughs> it had so much alcohol at that point that it was really pushing it down. I think with when Dr. And that's got to be exciting though, right? When yeah. you see that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it was cool because you usually only see that with wine. You very rarely see that with beer. And it, I guess, I think some people were really screwing up because one, it may be lack of knowledge. But when they, they assume that when their hydrometer hits its base level of zero, that the beer is done, not aware of the fact that it can go negative. Mm-hmm. So unless you have something for wine or like a digital density meter like we do, which reads any range of the gravity, you don't really have any indication unless or if you're like doing forced um, VDK testing. So, you know, when it's done fermenting, I think a lot of people were prematurely crashing their beers. So you get all the diacetyl and the acetaldehyde that comes out of sure. not really knowing what the yeast is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, I I wouldn't say that it's my favorite style because I like a little bit of body in the beer, and I'm not saying that our beer, our beers are super dry, but our standard IPA finishes out between like 1.2 and 1.4 degrees Play-Doh, so sure. it's already super dry, uh, but it's ticking these into the below zero. It's just, I don't know, it's interesting. It's a new process, and and people seem to like it. You know, yeah, I mean, it's captured the zeitgeist, you know, right now, and it's captured the imagination. And you know, certainly, whenever I travel and I see one on, I'll I want to try it because yeah. I want to see what everybody's, you know, sort of take is. Well, um, large breweries have been using fermentation enzymes for years. Sure. It's a large part of the process. This is just kind of bringing it in. It's almost like bringing it into your kitchen at home. Something mm-hmm. that's been been done at Coors and NAB for decades. Right. Yeah. You know, but even in craft, though, you know, living mostly in the imperial stout world, uh, but now bringing it into and trying to break new ground in IPA. Yeah. I mean, which is something that is, I think something, it, it, you tell me, I mean, trying to break new ground in IPA from, yeah. from, a, from a brewer's standard, how much, how much does that control your thought process? Or does it? It does from time to time. I think that for me, more of my interest comes in, in um, 
the flavor profile of the IPA. Like one of my new favorite hops is called Sabro. It was formerly HBC 438. Mm -hmm. And it started drawing coconut out naturally from a hop, which I'd only seen once before. And that was in its like sister hop 472. And I don't know. I just thought it was amazing because I like coconut. I know it's a very polarizing flavor. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Is that true? Yeah. We have, it's, we're split 50-50 here at the brewery. Too. Really? People are like, ah, keep her coconut out of my beer. So and I'm it's like, like candy corn. Uh, right. Candy corn's I'm, disgusting. Well, I'm with you, but 50% of the people <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. Like, this is great. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I, you know what? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do care, but not that much. It's, it's beer. It's yeah. beer, right? If it's not for you, you don't like the profile of this beer, just pick another one. We have yeah. like 20 on tap. So um, I, I don't know. I really, I like the different flavor expressions that you can have. And also just how to complement even with other ingredients like fruit. We use all whole fruit here. All any, if we do any herb sort of additions, we make our own tinctures. Um, but it's how to kind of make this, it's just, it's, it's creating harmony with ingredients without overcomplicating it. So when you tried Sabro, when that came out, uh, and the, the, the coconut notes, mm-hmm. like, where did your brewer mind go? Like, what did you immediately start trying to put together? So we did, uh, we first got a hold of 438 in its elite stages as an experimental variety. So a couple years before it was commercialized. I mean, this was, this is actually its first season as a commercial hop. But I don't know. I just, what I really loved about the hop, which I had been picking out in the experimental yards in Yakima just by rubbing it, walking through with Jason Peralt at Peralt Farms and smelling this hop and picking up these profiles. And the thing that was the most remarkable about it was after having the opportunity to brew with it, it smelled exactly the same as a raw hop into a pellet, into the beer. Really? The exact same thing. There was no translation of it at all, which I thought was incredible. It was one of the most true to type hops, yes. And then it continued to hold on. It aged so gracefully in the beer. It just didn't want to die. So we used it in, we don't really do single hop beers. I use a known elements, usually Centennial, to kind of bolster it up a little bit, but it's two pound per barrel, dry hop, 438. And it was super, super easy just to evaluate what it could do as a hop. And then it kind of, it brought me to like, well, what if we do something that's like tropically inspired with like pineapple and coconut characteristics? But at that point I couldn't get any more 438. So we made a beer called Sneaky Tiki as a collaboration with Figaro Mountain and we actually added toasted coconut to it <clears throat> and some pineapple forward hops. You're looking sort of away like you're <laughs> like you're like a little. No, I want to make that beer again. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I mean, now we don't need to use coconut in it because we have a nice contract for Sabra. Okay. So our supply is is guaranteed. So that's a great transition into uh, supply. It's citrus season here in California. And I'm wondering, like, so many brewers will use purees. They'll get the stuff from Oregon. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff. But, like, citrus and beer has always been, I don't know, difficult to work with um, on on some levels. Uh, It's laborious. Yeah. Um, But you're processing everything by hand here. Mm Mm-hmm. We so, do. Now, we have used Oregon fruit for stuff before, but it's usually for berries and sure. things like that that aren't necessarily prevalent in Southern California. But when it comes to our citrus beers, I f- almost feel ashamed if we don't use something that's fresh or local because, I mean, the closest citrus farms are like 50 miles from here. Um, I've become friends with these farmers, you know, just from visiting farmers markets all over Southern California. And you're able to control the quality of the fruit that you're getting. We can buy organically so that we don't have to worry about anything gross being, because we're using raw peel. We'll do a quick soak in vodka or something just to make sure that it's cleaned up. But I want to make sure that there's nothing that's like kind of 
been absorbed in the peel itself. Mm-hmm. And then the idea of knowing who grew it, knowing you're, imp- you're impacting their family in a positive manner, uh, and just the flavor impact is really key. So walk me through one of the beers that you're making this time of year okay. with one of the, the citrus. The Messenger is okay. a perfect example. It's our winter seasonal IPA. We actually just put it in a 16-ounce can, uh, four-pack for the first time. Oh, cool. But not at $20. I think we sell it for like thirteen ninety nine. <laughs> Throwing shade. <laughs> All right. It's fine. I, I applaud people who can who, who can, can make that kind it. of money. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. But it's an IPA that's made with Citra, Eldorado, and Sabro. Okay. Sabro actually became a fairly dominant hop within it. And then we utilize um, California-grown yuzu. It's actually from Fallbrook. The Meyer lemon is from Bakersfield, just south of Bakersfield, actually, Murray Family Farms, and then Buddhist Hand Citron. Okay. So three pretty... I don't know. They're impactful in their flavor. The Buddha's hand is like lemon skittles. Yuzu is just this really interesting, pungent, floral citrus character that's from Japan originally, and it isn't really grown so so much in California. Mm-hmm. So we finally found it fresh again um, from California. So I kind of latched onto, it. and they're like, "We only have ten trees. We produce hundred pounds a week. You gotta let us know what you need." But I like that. Like, like I, it's like a direct connection to this grove from Three Weavers to Fallbrook, and it's it's. Uh, Fallbrook's north San Diego County, yeah. so it's not far. But we spend many hours zesting this fruit. We only use the zest. We don't use the juice. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, so we pull the zest. We avoid the pith, so there's no bitterness to what we're adding to the beer. We juice all of the the fruit, and then we'll um, we'll probably make a goza in a couple weeks or something and add the juice into it so that we're not wasting it. Okay, um, that was the other part of it as well, because like, you can use... You know, citrus in multiple ways. Of course. Like it's not just, yeah. yeah. So we'll freeze the juice. We yeah. have a freezer on site. And so we freeze the juice, let it sit till it's time to make a beer with it. But the zest goes into the bright tank on top of the beer after it's been spun through the centrifuge. So we clarify the beer into the bright tank on top of the zest. It sits on the zest for five days. We'll rouse it with CO2 in the tank just to kind of get it out. Uh, just any sort of oils that may settle at the bottom, just mm-hmm. push it back up and then we pack it. Because you want those, right? I mean, it's, it's, oh, yeah. that's, that's the, that's the it's, best that's, part. That's, that's the what you part. want yeah. out of it. And we've actually found that we have a better flavor stability when we use these oils, the citrus oils in our beers. They don't oxidize as readily as like pretty much the same compounds found in hops. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are T90 pellets. There's some oxidative quality in them. Um, but the oils just hold on and they, they have this just beautiful pungent aroma and you know, I think that my production staff has gotten used to the fact that there are times of year where we process a lot of citrus and they've gotten really good at it. They, they've all learned how to zest masterfully. And we just sit around a table. You have and a look of pride uh, as, as you're saying. Because it's at first they're just like, really? Because I'll show up. I Sometimes I'll go to the, the Los Angeles. Um, it's basically the wholesale vegetable, fruit and vegetable produce market. Right. They're only their operating hours are like midnight to 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So you got to go sometime in between then. So I show up at like, you know, to the, to the, the, the wholesalers, I'll show up there up there at like, I don't know, four thirty five o'clock in the morning and they'll come in in the morning and there's like 500 pounds of fruit and they know that they're going to have to process it. But we so you're just springing this on them. It's like, no, uh, they yeah. know about okay, it. They know it's coming. Okay. I don't think that they're ever really ready for it, but they're more ready for it now <laughs> than before. Uh, but we sit around a table and we it's kind of a bonding experience. Our sales reps, whenever they come they come through to get samples for the route, they'll sit down for 30 minutes and zest. Uh, this past time, our controller, Chelsea, got in on the zesting. And, and I don't know. I mean, it's a way for people who aren't necessarily always having, they don't always have their hands on the beer. It's a way for them to connect 
to something that they're like intimately involved with, maybe not on the production side of it. But yeah. there's, I don't think that there's a way to duplicate the flavor of fresh citrus in beer. And that now goes to the drinkable part. And, and we've been talking about drinkability in beer, you know, forever. And I think in some ways there are some recipes that are out there that have sort of lost our way a little bit. There's people who, uh, you know, choke down a lot of DDH you know, super hazy IPAs <laughs> yeah. because they either think that they're supposed to. Um, but these days, you know, whether it's people being jerks or people just actually not recognizing that this is what's happening in the market, but we're seeing a lot more drain pour videos and we're seeing yeah. a lot more. And, and that to me is sort of indicative of, all right, this, it's somebody who's being an ass, right. you know, on the internet. But it also means that it's somebody who did try to drink something who found it to be that bad. Right. Un, un, undrinkable. Abhorrent. Like you know, it's just like, get rid of it. Um, you know, I mean, I guess that I, I once learned this lesson. I, when I was working at Moylan's, I was also a bartender at Beer Revolution in Oakland. And the owner there was like, look, don't talk shit about any beer because your least favorite beer is someone's favorite. Mm -hmm. So I learned that where I'm just like, oh, you don't want it. This is the worst beer I've ever had. I'm like, well, that's my favorite. I drink it twice a day. Um, <laughs> the thing is, how long can it last, Right. This industry is ever-changing. The styles obviously evolve over time, but you can't, you can't think that you're going to become a legacy brand brewing these really heavy, expensive, not that pal I mean, palatable, okay, but they're not refreshing in any way. Beer is sh should be refreshing. You should take a sip and want to go, ah, that was delicious, instead of like, okay, I see what you were doing with this. Can I have a Pilsner, please? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. Drain pour on the internet. The, uh, yeah, no, no, but that aside, but I, yeah. I think the fact that you say drinkable mm -hmm. and there are brewers that I think are thinking long-term who use words like that. And, and and I used to roll my eyes at some of that. It's like, oh, it's marketing speak, it's marketing speak. But like, it's not. You know, it, it's not. You're right. It, in, in a lot of ways, it really is. Oh, you're fine with that. Okay. Uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it really is what you should be striving for. It's a great way to sell beer, but it's what you should be, be striving for. And you just mentioned being a legacy brand. Yeah. And I wonder how much that even plays into what you're trying to accomplish. You know, you've worked at places that have cemented their hmm. reputation and their name uh, you know, in the Hall of Fame yeah. uh, of beer. Yeah. Do you strive to do the same thing? We don't want to be fleeting, right? Three Weavers wasn't created to just be like a flash in the pan sort of brewery. Uh, I do envision longevity with who we are. You know, part of joining Canarchy was establishing that because, you know, we got to the point where we were growing so fast that it was just not, we couldn't afford to grow that fast. There had to be something mm -hmm. that happened. And this was the best possible option for us to kind of envision really but yeah I think that we hopefully have a place in the annals of time when it comes to brewing because what's the point otherwise I mean I I'm a brewer okay that's my career that's yeah. my first career out of college this is what I love to do I don't need to be known I don't need recognition I actually shy away from stuff like that for the most part but I want to know that we can believe in what we're doing. And in the end, let's look, let's look, jump 10, 10 years down the road, right? Okay. Three Weavers will be 14 years old at that sure. point in time. If we're still around, we made it farther than most of the breweries. Um, and I think it's something to be proud about. How do you see that road unfolding in front of you? How do you get to 10 years from now? How do you get there? 
focus on drinkable beer, right? Someone needs to buy more than one. And I've, I've said this since, since we've opened, you know, we are a business. I am a brewer, but this is a business. We need to keep our lights on, especially as we grow and we hire more people and we expand our market reach. But I want someone to order our beer and then I want them to order another one. Mm-hmm. And then I want them to order another one, right? I don't want them to drink our beer and then go to someone else because they're like, well, that was interesting, but now I need this other beer. And yeah, there's not a lot of brand loyalty out there. Um, but we've, you know, with our rate of growth, I think that there's definitely loyalty to Three Weavers in Southern California, at least mostly in LA County. People are repeat buyers of our beer. So. I don't spend a lot of time out here uh, in LA, but you know, I remember you know years ago, sort of thinking that it was a beer desert, and uh, in a lot of ways, it was. Yeah. Um, and now it's you guys are closing in on a hundred or so breweries just in LA County in yeah. this general area. Um, how do you describe the beer consumer? Do you think? Like, you know, are there? They still have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with this overall focus towards local products, and that's not just with beer. Obviously, it's with food. Um, that helps drive more people into our tasting room or to decide to buy three weavers at the grocery store. But, I mean, there's still a lot to learn. But if you look at it, we're the largest beer-consuming market in the country. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we still have a small fraction, we craft is probably 15% of Los Angeles. Maybe it's a little bit more at this point. But that's a, that's a lot of white space. I like to call that runway. Like, we're at yeah. the beginning of it. So um, they're learning Right, which is great. I think some of it, though, is stomaching the cost from time to time. Obviously, we produce a more expensive beer than what a lot of people have been used to paying for right. for so long. And even though that they'd be willing to pay top dollar for wine or a fine dining experience or, right. you know, yeah, beer. But has that actually it. plays to our benefit in L.A. That's too, what I right? Ask, we have yeah. those people as well here and, and they do buy our beer. And, you know, I've always envisioned us kind of existing in a white tablecloth environment, too. For restaurants, and we have some really amazing restaurants in LA that are, are really focusing on beer as well, and they they look to us too because our I don't know I I always thought that our beers go very well with food because the flavors don't challenge one or the other right they go together really yeah, well. yeah. well let's take Los Angeles out of California for okay. just a second right so Northern California obviously in what uh, Sierra did in some of those early days and putting out uh, you know a, a, a crazy. Uh, a 32 IBU pale ale that sort of revolutionized uh, the, everything. You know, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and then obviously the the, the impact of Anchor uh, up in San Francisco, and then going down to San Diego, where West Coast IPAs really sort of uh, took off, ran the table, uh, and established you know that region as you know the top IPA area, at least in a lot of people's minds for for a really long time. LA sort of being a desert in a lot of ways, uh, beer wise. Do you think that you and your other brewers are trying to find a way to join those other regions to sort of establish LA as the beer X or the style X, the movement X, or is that? I don't think the I don't think so. Um, if you look at a lot of the brewers, a lot of us aren't. We're not from here. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people who live in LA are from LA. So you have a lot of transplants, which I think is great because. To some degree, you're able to bring your brewing influence from where you came from into this area. It's such a diverse city, mm-hmm. as is this melting pot. You can get anything you want, any time of the day. And I think that our brewing scene um, really kind of shares that sentiment. So I think it's amazing to be a diverse melting pot of brewers and styles and breweries. 
And that also means having diversity outreach, though, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as a middle-aged white guy, I'm sort of the, you know, the beer market right now, but there's so many other folks that you all should be reaching out to and trying to reach out to. How does, right. how does that work uh, for here? I mean, if you go into our tasting room when it's open, and I know that some of the guys from Canarchy, you know, they're Grand, Ra- Grand Rapids, they're in Austin and Longmont and Colorado, and when they came in, one of the first times they were just floored by how diverse our clientele was. And I think that that's just because of where we're located, right? You know, not only are, have we become a destination for beer travelers, but we're in a very residential area. So, you know, people who live in Westchester and Inglewood, they come here. We're right by LAX. People who work at the airport, we see them here all the time. So I think we've been able to, <laughs> Hopefully after post-shift, yeah. not, not pilots, <laughs> Although I, I invite any pilots to come and let me, I, I'm kind of a commercial uh, commercial airline buff. Okay. It's a little weird. Commercial aviation is one of my things. Really? Any any pilots want to come in and say, hello, I'll buy you a beer? Wow. But not before you fly a plane. Um, okay. A lot of ground crews and things like that. Yeah. And we have uh, you know <laughs> flight attendants and things like that too. But I think we just, it's it was almost inherent, our ability to reach a diverse crowd of people without having to be like, well, we're going to target this population and we're going to target this population. And we're going to, you know, I think that we were able to catch everyone at one time just as a matter of location. Because on the side of your trucks, it says uh, it's it's more than beer, it's community. Mm-hmm. And the community is, is it the people? Is it the idea? Is it the... There's a, It's a like multifaceted does, answer, right? It's not yeah. just one thing. We do a lot of community outreach. Like, okay, today... We have our holiday party, staff holiday party. Okay. Part of it is that. This is going to air like well after that, but yeah. Yes, that's fine. But today is Today is our staff holiday party. Half of it is at a bar. Half of it is at another bar, but we're doing a skateboard build for the Candade Foundation where tomorrow morning we'll go to an elementary school in Downey and deliver all these, these skateboards to underprivileged kids who don't have access to stuff like that. But so community outreach is kind of built into who we are and who Lynn and I am who we are as people. Yeah. Uh, it's never anything that we really wanted to like hang our hat on. We don't really advertise the fact that we do a lot of charitable outreach, but that's just kind of the most like the base level of community, right? Is our backyard who we can affect positively in our backyard through beer. But our community is also our employees, this community that we've built within three weavers. So we're responsible to each other within that. And we like to foster a positive environment here. Our community can also be the industry as a whole, right? And how we can impact the brewing industry positively, whether it be through, you know, Lynn does a lot of um, panels. She's often looked at as someone who's a lot of good advice on how to start a brewery, how to mm-hmm. grow a brewery, different sort of strategic moves. I always, I'm always open to other brewers, whether it be through MBAA or anything else, the Pink Boot Society, um, to offer advice on how my path was forged or, you know, there's a lot of people out there stuck in shitty jobs and sometimes they just need a little kick to do something else and know that there are better things out there. Um, when it comes to kind of our, our, in like our employees who they are, we offer them like, I think that our benefits package is one of the best in the country. Okay. Right. We match 401k. They have employer paid healthcare. Wow. Like there's a lot of paid time off. There's comp time. There's a ton of perks. They, they get to travel. It's just, Everything that I envisioned, which if you want to go back to a question, one of the questions you had for me earlier, which was, did someone ever say anything to you that's really impacted what you do in your career today? Being at Sierra Nevada as an intern, watching how they treated their employees and how they interact with the world, they are truly like stewards of our industry. 
I learned a lot from them. And the culture that they built within Sierra Nevada was something that when Lynn and I were first talking about how we would like focus on you know, the employees and the culture that we built here, I always went back to Sierra Nevada and I was like, this is, this is what it needs to look like. Mm-hmm. It should feel like this. Obviously, it'll take on its own... Um, its own life, right, and its own vibe, but this is where we should start by looking here. And it costs a lot more to do that, to pay for healthcare for mm-hmm. your employees, but I believe that it's important because it, it, one, you retain people, right? They trust you, and they're taken care of. It's a, Sometimes it's a thankless job, brewing. I mean, it's a lot of hard, shitty work, and we wanna make sure that they're taken care of, they know that we care. I wanna switch gears. Okay. Um, and we probably should have talked about this a little bit earlier on, but uh, your philosophy of respecting the ingredients. Yes. And the fact that, you know, you say this quite a bit and you want to talk about where your ingredients are coming from. We talked about it with citrus, but uh, it's more even just the core four as well of knowing where those come from and how they are, uh, how they're used and everything. But, but respecting the ingredients, I'm curious if you can sort of explain that. And, and when, when you put that forward in the same way, <clears throat> excuse me, it should be one of these things in my mind that all brewers say. Yeah. But I kind of get the impression that you think maybe not. You don't hear it very often, actually, which surprises me all the time because without those ingredients, you would have no beer, mm-hmm. right? It would be water. Even that, knowing where your water comes from. And for us being in Southern California, it was always really important to be mindful of the amount of resources that we use because I don't know if anyone's... Lo- read the news, but California's been in a drought for like the past hundred years, yeah. essentially, right? Like we're in a desert, essentially. It's, this is a desert. It's funny yeah. that we chose to settle so many people in this area with no water. But um, minding the fact that we need to watch our water consumption. You know, I would love more than anything to have reverse osmosis here because the water isn't always the best. I think it makes fine beer, though. And so with, with that, we have not put in an RO system because they're incredibly wasteful. But just going to the other ingredients like your, where your malt comes from and where your hops come from. There's someone behind that, right? It doesn't just show up in a bag because someone willed this bag of malted barley into existence. So there's an entire supply chain that exists prior to that finished product ready to go in your brewery. And I think that you need to pay attention to that. A lot of love and care and respect and education and knowledge. A lot of times when you look at malt, and hops, these are multi-generational farming families, right? They, they aren't, they weren't born yesterday, they didn't just, just start. You're benefiting from years of experience. So I like to meet them, right? I wanna you know. you wanna know where your money is going. It's not, it's not just where the money is going, sometimes that does matter. We do make decisions on who we buy from based off of where the money is going. But it's nice to know that they care. I always want to know where their passion lies and how they came to be and to respect the ingredients the way that they want them to be respected, right? It takes really great ingredients to make great beer. I don't care what anyone says. You can't make great beer with shitty ingredients. But meeting the people that make them, just you kind of feel a little bit more about why it's great. It's, yeah. it's obviously if amazing people make really crappy malt, probably not going to buy it. Sure even if I love the people. But when you make that connection that like you can kind of like, you can taste the passion and you understand that they care about the ingredients as much as you do, usually more because it's their livelihood. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I've been afforded the opportunity to visit a lot of the places where we get our malt 
Um, I've actually been, with the exception of RAR in Alex, Canada, which I'm going to be visiting this year, I've been to every place that produces our ingredients. Um, if we buy hops from a farm, with the exception of Australia, New Zealand, and Germany, which I will take off of my list this year for selection, um, I've been to every American farm that grows our hops. I've met the growers. I see where they're being picked. Um, I want to know that there's transparency in the supply chain there because we offer that same level of transparency in what we do here. Um, but it's also a really good way to stay on top of what's coming too mm -hmm. and, and watching innovation within the same way that we innovate our recipes and the flavors within our beer. You know, the farmers are innovating how they grow the hop, how to make it more agronomically sound. Um, uh, as the hop industry has exploded in Yakima, especially a lot of the question is how do we maintain this high level of quality yet we have to pick twice as many hops yeah. and, and they have a limited harvest window depending on variety. And that's, watching the challenge and how these these growers have really kind of figured out how to keep the quality because they know if the quality's not there no one's buying it while also growing their operation has been pretty spectacular as well do you try to educate the drinker on your education on what you've learned on where the things are coming from i i, I know it's harder the larger you get and um and, and in a lot of cases uh beer fans don't necessarily care they don't yeah care about some, the, some yeah. Of them don't really care but, but water, especially though, is one of those things where it is—it's not just beer, but it's life, and it's—it's—it's mm -hmm. it's, it, it's so important to our to our everyday um, existence. And I'm always sort of curious as to, you know, we don't often hear from too many brewers, or at least uniformly, of like, hey, you should be aware of this precious resource you know, um, more and more. And it, and this is a cool place to sort of educate on that, mm -hmm. you know. And you obviously have put a lot of thought into your consumption and what you want to use and not everyone cares. Yeah. You know, um, which is unfortunate, right? Cause we impact, we are, I mean, you don't, it's not even the water that it takes to make the beer. Sure. It's the water that it took to grow your barley and then malt your barley and grow your hops. And it's mm -hmm. not even that transportation, right? Mm -hmm. Refrigeration. It's a ton. Just, it's so resource and it's clean heavy. Up at the brewery as well. It's, you know, it's the wastewater at the end of the day. Absolutely. The, yeah. Which we, you know, we, we maintain a wastewater permit in Los Angeles County. They come and they sample what's going out of the brewery several times a year without any notice, just mm -hmm. to make sure that we're always in line. Cause you fun. have to, it's fine. <laughs> we're, we never, we've never had an issue with it because we're very mindful. Yeah. All of the employees understand, you know, if we're dumping, if we're putting chemicals like cleaning chemicals and things like that down the drain, they need to be neutralized to mm -hmm. some degree um, so that you're not affecting the anaerobes that are treating our water because we need that too. But, I, you know, I wish there was more of a focus on the resources and on the sourcing of the ingredients. But I don't know if everyone really knows that that's a thing. Right. And then, and then I guess it's sort of the... How do you educate them? Yeah, or or do you at this point? Like it's. I think there's always room for education. There's there's. I keep hitting this. Oh, thing. it's fine. There's uh oh, there's always somebody who wants to know about it. Okay. Right. It may not be the whole because like you know I think there's a lot of people operating breweries out there that I wouldn't necessarily consider brewers. Okay. But that's the nature of the explosion of an industry where it really doesn't take much mm -hmm. to get a license to open a brewery. Yeah. Um, you can put the basic ingredients together and the TTB calls it beer. Mm -hmm. As long as you're paying taxes on it, no one's questioning you. Um, I'm sorry to all of those people out there. But, you know, there's I just that I think comes back to just never mastering your skill. There's always more to learn. And and some of that is where your ingredients come from. 
Where did the edible glitter come from? <laughs> uh, that initially, the inspiration came from, her name's Beth Doherty. She's in Denver. And where was she? At Wincoop. And did a glitter beer. And I was like, oh, all right. Um, but it was made for, initially for um, a nonprofit called Keep Abreast. And they do a festival called Brewbies. And their whole thing is pink beer. So we're doing pink beer for it. And I think the only thing to make a pink beer more spectacular is to add edible glitter to it. And I guess it kind of, it took a couple years before people really caught on to it. Now that everyone was posting edible glitter beers on their Instagram, I don't really like making them anymore. We don't make them very often. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that much. But I was at a, um, I was at a, Brow Bevial in Nuremberg a couple years ago, which is a large brewing trade show. And the Germans were selling edible glitter. They use it in pharmaceuticals. If you've, you've ever eaten a glitter or jelly belly, they're gross, but um, they have edible glitter in them. Okay. There's yeah. edible beverage, like there's yeah. glitter in like spirits and stuff like that. And once I saw that, I was like, oh, you guys just legitimized the entire trend. And this was before it even exploded in like that, whatever, three month period it had where everyone wanted to make one were you just shocked at the attention that it was getting at the time yeah it was carly smith um who used to be in san diego who's now in charlotte at bold missy and i think she was the one that really started getting a lot of media attention i remember declining interviews for for glitter beer i was like this is not what i'm gonna be known for (laughs) (laughs) and so i declined interviews to do it and they still put my name in it but uh, I was just like, this is not, this is not what it's I not want my legacy. No, no, yeah. definitely not. They're not going to like every year after I've died, just like coat it in edible glitter. <laughs> but just know some of the best edible glitter in the world is, was engineered and produced by the Germans. So fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> and they're the most traditional brewers right. out there. So if you want to source the very best in edible glitter, uh, you have to look to the Germans. Yeah, it's made by Merck, actually. It's okay. A pharmaceutical company. It Fantastic. Does it. I know. It's better living through chemistry. I know. What's your hope for beer? I would love to see the industry continue to grow. I don't want to see this. Uh, I've just, I think in the last, like, less than a month alone, there's been, like, four breweries that have shuttered in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few up here in L.A. as well. Yeah. I don't want to see that happen. I want to see people focus on quality. And with that, their brands will grow and the industry will prosper as a whole. I don't think that we're at a saturation point, right? Every town could handle a couple breweries if it was small and the beers were like the smallest towns. Sure. Right? Pizzeria shops, donut shops. Yeah, exactly. It could be a small operation. You're not looking for global domination, but like you can have a profitable, sustainable brewing operation on a small scale and still make really great beer. Yeah. You look to Germany where, you know, t- the, the smallest of towns have like three dedicated breweries. Maybe they each make one or two different types of beers, but they're doing fine. They've been open for, you know, 150, 200 years. Yeah. So I think that we can do that here. Um, but quality, please, please just know that you can always brew a better beer. Right. Always. And know what quality is. I, I've been yeah. saying recently just, you know, the, the, the amount of folks who continue to put out knowingly flawed beers yeah and just being like oh you know we can get a pass we're craft we're independent we're what it's like nope yeah yeah, i don't those days are gone they are gone and i don't really have a lot of room for those types of breweries in like my mental and emotional real estate sure there's ways to learn i always believe that it was better to get a job somewhere else before starting your own brewery like learn from someone get a mentor know that you probably don't know everything even if you read how to brew 
Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd hope there'd be more education than that, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Alexandra Noel of Three Weavers Brewing Company. Thanks for sitting down here at your conference room uh, on the day of your office party when you should be, uh, you know, prepping and pre-gaming. Nah, and, we'll get and there. All of the all of the other stuff. Uh, <laughs> thanks for taking the time and, uh, and and sharing your stories and, and and your insights. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, if you have questions for me, dear listeners, uh, guests you'd like to hear, topics you'd like discussed, you can reach out to me directly at John Hall J O H N H O L L at beerandbrewing.com or join the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Uh, you can also go to beerandbrewing.com. There you can subscribe to the magazine. You can read all about how to be a better home brewer, find out what's happening in this crazy craft beer world of ours these days, uh, and hear directly from brewers like Alex. Um, uh, you were just in a recent issue not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with uh, your pick six My beers. pick six. Yeah, which was a lot of fun. So you can read uh, all about those in the magazine and online by going to beerandbrewing.com and subscribing. And we will be back next week with an all-new episode. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, cheers. Join us next June for the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine Brewers Retreat to the Ultimate Brewing Experience in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Don't miss the chance to brew with some of the world's best brewers like Jason Perkins of Allagash, Phil Wymore of Perennial, Will Myers of Cambridge Brewing, Neil Fisher of Weldworks, Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest, Sam Richardson of Other Half, and more. Enjoy fabulous food, fantastic beer, and a -a one-of-a-kind brewing experience at an oceanfront luxury resort. Tickets are selling fast. Visit BrewersRetreat.com or give us a call at 888-875-8708, extensions zero to secure your spot now this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew